Section 33 of Volume 1, A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Emily Jomard. Volume 1 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by François Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 16. The Crusades, Their Origin, and Their Success. Part 3. All the army of the Crusaders put themselves in motion to cross Asia Minor from the northwest to the southeast, and to reach Syria. At their arrival before Nicaea they numbered, it is said, five hundred thousand foot and one hundred thousand horse, figures evidently too great, for everything indicates that at the opening of the crusade the three great armies, starting from France and Italy, under Godfrey de Bouillon, Bohemond, and Raymond of Toulouse, did not reach this number, and they had certainly lost many during their long march through their sufferings and in their battles. However that may be, after they had marched all in one mass for two days, and had then extended themselves over a larger area, for the purpose, no doubt, of more easily finding provisions, the crusaders broke up into two main bodies, led, one by Godfrey de Bouillon and Raymond of Toulouse, the other by Bohemond and Tancred. On the 1st of July, at daybreak, this latter body, encamped at a short distance from Doraleum in Phrygia, saw descending from the neighboring heights a cloud of enemies who burst upon the Christians, first rained a perfect hail of missiles upon them, and then penetrated into their camp, even to the tents assigned to the women, children, and old men, the numerous following of the crusaders. It was Killage Arslan, who, after the fall of Nicaea, had raised this new army of Saracens, and was pursuing the conquerors on their march. The battle began in great disorder. The chiefs in person sustained the first shock, and the Duke of Normandy, Robert Shorthose, took in his hand his white banner embroidered with gold, and waving it over his head threw himself upon the Turks, shouting, God willeth it, God willeth it. Bohemond obstinately sought out Killage Arslan in the fray, but at the same time he sent messengers in all haste to Godfrey de Bouillon, as yet but a little way off, to summon him to their aid. Godfrey galloped up, and with some fifty of his knights preceding the rest of his army, was the first to throw himself into the midst of the Turks. Towards midday, the whole of the first body arrived, with standards flying, with the sound of trumpets and with the shouting of warriors. Killage Arslan and his troops fell back upon the heights whence they had descended. The crusaders, without taking breath, ascended in pursuit. The Turks saw themselves shut in by a forest of lances, and fled over wood and rock, and two days afterwards they were still flying, says Albert of Aix, though none pursued them unless it were God himself. The victory of Doraleum opened the whole country to the crusaders, and they resumed their march toward Syria, 
paying their sole attention to not separating again. It was not long before they had to grapple with other dangers against which bravery could do nothing. They were crossing, under a broiling sun, deserted tracts, which their enemies had taken good care to ravage. Water and forage were not to be had. The men suffered intolerably from thirst. Horses died by hundreds. At the head of their troops marched knights mounted on asses or oxen. Their favorite amusement, the chase, became impossible for them, for their hawking-birds, too, the falcons and gerfalcons they had brought with them, languished and died beneath the excessive heat. One incident obtained for the crusaders a momentary relief. The dogs which followed the army, prowling in all directions, one day returned with their paws and coats wet. They had, therefore, found water, and the soldiers set themselves to look for it, and, in fact, discovered a small river in a remote valley. They got water drunk, and more than three hundred men, it is said, were affected by it, and died. On arriving in Pisidia, a country intersected by watercourses, meadows, and woods, the army rested several days. But at that very point, two of its most competent and most respected chiefs were very nearly taken from it. Count Raymond of Toulouse, who was also called Raymond of Saint-Gilles, fell so ill that the Bishop of Orange was reading over him the prayers for the dying, when one of those present cried out that the Count would assuredly live, for that the prayers of his patron saint, Gilles, had obtained for him a truce with death, and Raymond recovered. Godfrey de Bouillon, again, whilst riding in a forest, came upon a pilgrim attacked by a bear, and all but fallen a victim to the ferocious beast. The duke drew his sword and urged his horse against the bear, which, leaving the pilgrim, rushed upon the assailant. The frightened horse reared, Godfrey was thrown, and according to one account, immediately remounted. But, according to another, he fell, on the contrary, together with his horse. However, he sustained a fearful struggle against the bear, and ultimately killed it by plunging his sword up to the hilt into its belly, says William of Tyre. But with so great an effort, and after receiving so serious a wound, that his soldiers, hurrying up at the pilgrim's report, found him stretched on the ground, covered with blood, and unable to rise, and carried him back to the camp, where he was, for several weeks, obliged to be carried about in a litter in the rear of the army. Through all these perils they continued to advance, and they were approaching the heights of Tarsus, the bulwark and gate of Syria, when a quarrel which arose between two of the principal crusader chiefs was like to seriously endanger the concord and strength of the army. Tancred, with his men, had entered Tarsus, the birthplace of St. Paul, and had planted his flag there. Although later in his arrival Baldwin, brother of Godfrey de Bouillon, claimed a right to the possession of the city, and had his flag set up instead of Tancred's, which was thrown into a ditch. During several days the strife was fierce and even bloody. The soldiers of Baldwin were the more numerous, and those of Tancred considered their chief too gentle, and his bravery, so often proved, scarcely sufficed to form an excuse for his forbearance. Chiefs and soldiers, however, at last saw the necessity for reconciliation, 
and made mutual promises to sink all animosity. On returning to the general camp, Tancred was received with marked favor, for the majority of the crusaders, being unconcerned in the quarrel at Tarsus, liked him for his bravery and for his gentleness equally. Baldwin, on the contrary, was much blamed, even by his brother Godfrey, but he was far more ambitious on his own account than devoted to the common cause. He had often heard tell of Armenia and Mesopotamia, their riches and the large number of Christians living there, almost equally independent of Greeks and Turks, and in hope of finding there a chance of greatly improving his personal fortunes, he left the army of the crusaders at Maressa, on the very eve of the day on which the chiefs came to the decision that no one should for the future move away from the flag, and taking with him a weak detachment of two hundred horse and one thousand or twelve hundred foot, marched toward Armenia. His name and his presence soon made a stir there, and he got hold of two little towns which received him eagerly. Edessa, the capital of Armenia, and metropolis of Mesopotamia, was peopled by Christians, and a Greek governor, sent from Constantinople by the emperor, lived there, on payment of a tribute to the Turks. Internal dissensions, and the fear ever inspired by the vicinity of the Turks, kept the city in a state of lively agitation, and bishop, people, and Greek governor all appealed to Baldwin. He presented himself before Edessa with merely a hundred horsemen, having left the remainder of his forces in garrison at the town he had already occupied. All the population came to meet him, bearing branches of olive and singing chants in honor of their deliverer. But it was not long before outbreaks and alarms began again, and Baldwin looked on at them, waiting for power to be offered him. Still there was no advance. The Greek governor continued where he was, and Baldwin muttered threats of his departure. The popular disquietude was extreme, and the Greek governor, old and detested as he was, thought to smooth all by adopting the Latin chief and making him his heir. This, however, caused but a short respite. Baldwin left the governor to be massacred in a fresh outbreak. The people came and offered him the government, and he became Prince of Edessa, and ere long of all the neighboring country, without thinking any more of Jerusalem, of which nevertheless he was destined at no distant day to be king. Whilst Baldwin was thus acquiring, for himself and himself alone, the first Latin principality belonging to the Crusaders in the east, his brother Godfrey and the main Christian army were crossing the chain of Tarsus and arriving before Antioch, the capital of Syria. Great was the fame, with pagans and Christians, of this city. Its site, the beauty of its climate, the fertility of its land, its fish-abounding lake, its river of Orontes, its fountain of Daphne, its festivals and its morals had made it under the Roman Empire a brilliant and favorite abode. At the same time it was there that the disciples of Jesus had assumed the name of Christians, and that St. Paul had begun his heroic life as preacher and as missionary. It was absolutely necessary that the crusaders should take Antioch, but the difficulty of the conquest was equal to the importance. The city was well fortified and provided with a strong citadel. The Turks had been in possession of it for fourteen years, and its governor, Asian, or Bagisian, 
Yagisyan, or brother of black according to oriental historians, appointed by the sultan of Persia, Malikshah, was shut up in it with seven thousand horse and twenty thousand foot. The first attacks of the Christians failed, and they had the prospect of a long siege. At the outset their situation had been easy and pleasant. They encountered no hostility from the country people, who were intimidated or indifferent. They came and paid visits to the camp, and admitted the crusaders to their markets. The harvests, which were hardly finished, had been abundant. The grapes, says Guibert of Nogent, were still hanging on the branches of the vines. On all sides discoveries were made of grain shut up, not in barns, but in subterranean vaults and the trees were laden with fruit. These facilities of existence, the softness of the climate, the pleasantness of the places, the frequency of leisure, partly pleasure and partly care for nothingness, caused amongst the crusaders irregularity, license, indiscipline, carelessness, and often perils and reverses. The Turks profited thereby to make sallies, which threw the camp into confusion and cost the lives of crusaders, surprised or scattered about. Winter came. Provisions grew scarce and had to be sought at a greater distance and at greater peril, and living ceased to be agreeable or easy. Disquietude, doubts concerning the success of the enterprise, fatigue and discouragement made way amongst the army, and men who were believed to be proved Robert Shorthose, Duke of Normandy, William, Viscount of Melun, called the Carpenter, on account of his mighty battle-axe, and Peter the Hermit himself, who had never learned, says Robert the Monk, to endure such plaguy hunger, left the camp and deserted the banner of the cross, that there might be seen, in the words of the Apocalypse, even the stars falling from heaven, says Guibert of Nogent. Great were the scandal and the indignation. Tancred hurried after the fugitives and brought them back, and they swore on the gospel never again to abandon the cause which they had preached and served so well. It was clearly indispensable to take measures for restoring amongst the army discipline, confidence, and the morals and hopes of Christians. The different chiefs applied themselves thereto by very different processes, according to their vocation, character, or habits. Adhemar, Bishop of Puy, the renowned spiritual chief of the Crusade, Godfrey de Bouillon, Raymond of Toulouse, and the military chieftains renowned for piety and virtue, made head against all kinds of disorder either by fervent addresses or severe prohibitions. Men caught drunk had their hair cut off, Blasphemous and reckless gamesters were branded with a red-hot iron, and the women were shut up in separate tents. To the irregularities within were added the perils of incessant espionage on the part of the Turks in the very camp of the crusaders, and no one knew how to repress this evil. Brethren and lords, said Bohemond to the assembled princes, let me undertake this business by myself. I hope, with God's help, to find a remedy for this complaint. Caring but little for moral reform, he strove to strike terror into the Turks, and, by counteraction, restore confidence to the Crusaders. One evening, says William of Tyre, 
whilst everybody was as usual occupied in getting supper ready bohemond ordered some turks who had been caught in the camp to be brought out of prison and put to death forthwith and then having had a huge fire lighted he gave instructions that they should be roasted and carefully prepared as if for being eaten if it should be asked what operation was going on he commanded his people to answer the princes and governors of the camp this day decreed at their council that all turks or their spies who should henceforth be found in the camp should be forced after this fashion to furnish meat of their own carcasses to the princes as well as to the whole army the whole city of antioch adds the historian was stricken with terror at hearing the report of words so strange and a deed so cruel and thus by the act and pains of bohemond the camp was purged of this pest of spies and the results of the prince's meetings were much less known amongst the foe bohemond did not confine himself to terrifying the turks by the display of his barbarities he sought and found traitors amongst them during the incidents of the siege he had concocted certain relations with an inhabitant of antioch named ferouz or emir fer probably a renegade christian and seeming mussulman in favour with the governor assien or bagizian who had entrusted to him him and his family the ward of three of the towers and gates of the city emir fer whether from religious remorse or on promise of a rich recompense had after the ambiguous and torturous conversations which usually precede treason made an offer to bohemond to open to him and through him to the crusaders the entrance into antioch bohemond in covert terms informed the chiefs his comrades of this proposal leaving it to be understood that if the capture of antioch were the result of his efforts it would be for him to become its lord the count of toulouse bluntly rejected this idea we be all brethren said he and we have all run the same risk i did not leave my own country and face i and mine so many dangers to conquer new lordships for any particular one of us the opinion of raymond prevailed and bohemond pressed the matter no more that day but the situation became more and more urgent and armies of mussulman were preparing to come to the aid of antioch when these fresh alarms spread through the camp bohemond returned to the charge saying time presses and if ye accept the overtures made to us to-morrow antioch will be ours and we shall march in triumph on jerusalem if any find a better way of assuring our success i am ready to accept it and renounce on my own account all conquest raymond still persisted in his opposition but all the other chiefs submitted to the overtures and conditions of bohemond all proper measures were taken and emir fer being apprised thereof had bohemond informed that on the following night everything would be ready at the appointed hour threescore warriors with bohemond at their head repaired noiselessly to the foot of the tower indicated a ladder was hoisted and emir fer fastened it firmly to the top of the wall bohemond looked round and round but no one was in a hurry to mount bohemond therefore himself mounted 
and having received recognition from a mire fer, he leaned upon the ramparts, calling in a low voice to his comrades, and rapidly redescended to reassure them and get them to mount with him. Up they mount, that and two other neighboring towers are given up to them. The three gates are opened, and the crusaders rush in. When day appeared, on the 3rd of June, 1098, the streets of Antioch were full of corpses, for the Turks, surprised, had been slaughtered without resistance or had fled into the country. The citadel, filled with those who had been able to take refuge there, still held out, but the entire city was in the power of the crusaders, and the banner of Bohemond floated on an elevated spot over against the citadel. In spite of their triumph, the crusaders were not so near marching on Jerusalem as Bohemond had promised. Everywhere, throughout Syria and Mesopotamia, the Mussulmen were rising to go and deliver Antioch. An immense army was already in motion. There were eleven hundred thousand men, according to Matthew of Edessa, six hundred and sixty thousand, according to Fouché of Chartres, three hundred thousand, according to Raoul of Caen, and only two hundred thousand, according to William of Tyre and Albert of Aix. The discrepancy in the figures is a sufficient proof of their untruthfulness. The last number was enough to disquiet the crusaders, already much reduced by so many marches, battles, sufferings, and desertions. An old Mussulman warrior, celebrated at that time throughout western Asia, Korboga, Sultan of Mosul, hard by what was ancient Nineveh, commanded all the hostile forces, and four days after the capture of Antioch he was already completely round the place, enclosing the crusaders within the walls of which they had just become the masters. They were thus and all on a sudden besieged in their turn, having even in the very midst of them, in the citadel which still held out, a hostile force. Whilst they had been besieging Antioch, the Emperor Alexis Comnenus had begun to march with an army to get his share in their successes, and was advancing into Asia Minor when he heard that the Mussulman, in immense numbers, were investing the Christian army in Antioch, and not in a condition, it was said, to hold out long. The Emperor immediately retraced his steps towards Constantinople, and the Crusaders found that they had no Greek aid to hope for. The blockade, becoming stricter day by day, soon brought about a horrible famine in Antioch. Instead of repeating here, in general terms, the ordinary descriptions of this cruel scourge, we will reproduce its particular and striking features as they have been traced out by contemporary chroniclers. The Christian people, says William of Tyre, had recourse before long to procure themselves any food whatever to all sorts of shameful means. Nobles, free men, did not blush to hungrily stretch out the hand to nobodies, asking with troublesome pertinacity for what was too often refused. There were seen the very strongest, those whom their signal valor had rendered illustrious in the midst of the army, now supported on crutches, dragging themselves half-dead along the streets and in the public places, and, if they did not speak, at any rate they showed themselves, with countenances irrecognizable, silently begging alms of every passer-by. 
No self-respect restrained matrons or young women heretofore accustomed to severe restraints. They walked hither and thither, with pallid faces, groaning and searching everywhere for somewhat to eat, and they in whom the pangs of hunger had not extinguished every spark of modesty, went and hid themselves in the most secret places, and gnawed their hearts in silence, preferring to die of want rather than beg in public. Children still in the cradle, unable to get milk, were exposed at the crossroads, crying in vain for their usual nourishment, and men, women, and children all threw themselves greedily upon any kind of food, wholesome and unwholesome, clean and unclean, that they could scrape together here and there, and none shared with another that which they picked up. So many and such sufferings produced incredible dastardliness, and deserters escaped by night, in some cases throwing themselves down at the risk of being killed into the city moat, in others getting down by help of a rope from the ramparts. Indignation blazed forth against the fugitives. They were called rope-dancers, and God was prayed to treat them as the traitor Judas. William of Tyre and Guibert of Nogent, after naming some, and those the very highest, end with these words. Of many more I know not the names, and I am unwilling to expose all that are well known to me. We are assured, says William of Tyre, that in view of such woes and such weaknesses, the princes, despairing of any means of safety, held amongst themselves a secret council, at which they decided to abandon the army and all the people, fly in the middle of the night, and retreat to the sea. According to the Armenian historian Matthew of Edessa, the princes would seem to have resolved, in this hour of dejection, not to fly and leave the army to its fate, but to demand of Corbogzi an assurance for all, under the bond of an oath, of personal safety, on the promise of surrendering Antioch to him, after which they would return home. Several Arab historians, and amongst them Ibn al-Atir, Abul Faraj, and Abul Feda, confirm the statement of conditions. Whatever may have been the real turn taken by the promptings of weakness amongst the Christians, Godfrey de Bouillon and Adhemar, Bishop of Puy, energetically rejected them all, and an unexpected incident, considered as miraculous, reassured the wavering spirits both of soldiers and of chiefs. A priest of Marseilles, Peter Bartholomew, came and announced to the chiefs that St. Andrew had thrice appeared to him in a dream saying, Go into the church of my brother Peter at Antioch, and hard by the high altar thou wilt find, on digging up the ground, the head of the spear which pierced our Redeemer's side. That, carried in front of the army, will bring about the deliverance of the Christians. The appointed search was solemnly conducted under the eye of twelve reputable witnesses, priests, and knights, the whole army was in attendance at the closed gates of the church. The spearhead was found and carried off in triumph, a pious enthusiasm restored to all present entire confidence, and with loud shouts they demanded battle. The chiefs judged it proper to announce their determination to the chief of the Musulman, and for this mission they chose Peter the Hermit, who was known to them as a bold and able speaker. Peter, on arriving at the enemy's camp, 
presented himself without any mark of respect before the Sultan Korboga, surrounded by his satraps, and said, The sacred assembly of princes, pleasing to God, who are at Antioch, doth send me unto thy highness, to advise thee that thou art to cease from thy importunities, and that thou abandon the siege of a city which the Lord in his divine mercy hath given up to them. The prince of the apostles did wrest that city from idolatry, and convert it to the faith of Christ. He had forcibly but unjustly taken possession of it. They who be moved by a right, lawful anxiety for this heritage of their ancestors make their demand of thee that thou choose between diverse offers. Either give up the siege of the city, and cease troubling the Christians, or within three days from hence try the power of our arms, and that thou seek not after any, even a lawful subterfuge, they offer thee further choice between diverse determinations. Either appear alone in person to fight with one of our princes, in order that, if victorious, thou mayest obtain all thou canst demand, or, if vanquished, thou mayest remain quiet. Or, again, pick out diverse of thine who shall fight on the same terms with the same number of ours. Or, lastly, agree that the two armies shall prove one against the other the fortune of battle. Peter, answered Corboga ironically, it is not likely that the affairs of the princes who have sent thee be in such state that they can thus offer me choice betwixt diverse proposals, and that I should be bound to accept that which may suit me best. My sword hath brought them to such a condition that they have not themselves any longer the power of choosing freely, and that they be constrained to shape and unshape their wishes according to my good pleasure. Go, then, and tell these fools that all whom I shall find in full possession of all the powers of the manly age shall have their lives, and shall be reserved for me for my master's service, and that all others shall fall beneath my sword as useless trees, so that there shall remain of them not even a faint remembrance. Had I not deemed it more convenient to destroy them by famine than to smite them with the sword, I should already have gotten forcible mastery of the city, and they would have reaped the fruits of their voyage hither by undergoing the law of vengeance. End of chapter 16, part 3